Hello and welcome to the first Media Law Podcast newscast. This segment is a new feature of Series 2, brought to you by me, Colette Allen of City Law School, and MLP's own Tom Bennett and Paul Ragg. We aim to bring you more frequent updates of events in the world of media law, as and when they come, in a more bite-sized espresso format. I'm joined today by Tom. So, do we want to start with Harry and Meghan? I feel like they're the biggest cases so far. Yes, well, Meghan was going to be the big piece of news, I think, over the last week or so. And then Harry came out and um, launched his own action as well, um, about which we have very limited information at the moment. But it is apparently a claim to do with historic, seemingly historic phone hacking. We know from the Leveson inquiry, which is, uh, oh, it's, it's been seven years now, seventh anniversary of the Leveson inquiry, that Harry was named as one of the victims of the original phone hacking scandal. So the presumption is that some, if not all, of uh, the material about which he's claiming relates to hacking that happened, allegedly, um, a number of years ago. Um, It's not immediately clear why, owing to that, he is bringing the claim only now. Contextually, there is clearly a ruckus between the royal family and uh, the tabloid press at the moment, Um, but it is going to present some difficulties procedurally um, for Prince Harry, not least getting around the limitation period, which uh, six years for a misuse of private information claim, which is what this would be, um, that limitation period has no doubt expired and you will have to Uh, give good reasons to the court as to why uh, the claim should be allowed to proceed at this point. Um, So as I say, that that has really jumped in front of the uh, Meghan Markle uh, claims, but um, I'm delighted to be joined by Alex Antonio of uh, University of Essex for a quick chat about the Meghan Markle case. Hi, Alex. Hi, Tom. Thank you for inviting me. Um, the Meghan Markle litigation that's um, just, we've just heard it's been commenced. Um, it's something that you've written about. There's a, a piece of yours on the conversation. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I just want to get your thoughts on uh, this litigation and um, uh, where you think it might lead. Well, um, I, I think... That you know, aside from perhaps the um, the issues around privacy that might be raised uh, by her claim, I think there is also an additional layer of protection that may be offered um, from the law of copyright there. And um, I would think that she remains the owner of that piece of work, of that literary work, which is the letter. And she's the owner because usually the person who has created such a work is, in principle, the owner. So she owns copyright over that piece of work, and then she's allowed to decide how this will be copied and how this will be shared. So although physically the letter now belongs to the recipient, the the letter of that content belongs to her as a writer. Now, one might think that 
well, do I always need permission from the writer to um, uh, to use their work and avoid perhaps infringement? I would think that there are exceptions to copyright. Um, there are circumstances where permission is not always needed. And then my mind goes always to the issues around uh, criticism and review and then the purpose of reporting current events. Now, for the purposes of criticism and review, the law requires there that the material um, uh, used has been already um, uh, been made available to the public. So, for example, it was already published, it was already exhibited. Um, so, um, th this wouldn't necessarily apply to this private letter, though, because it looks like that it was obtained through an unauthorized act. Now, if you look into the exception for reporting current events, that exception requires that the use of the material is fair. But how likely is it that the court will decide that the use of confidential private material is fair? Now, in order perhaps to say that the use was fair, one must check whether there was clear and legitimate public interest. But, in my opinion, um, the factor of public interest um, has been very narrowly construed by the court so far. Although the Copyright Designs and Patents Act doesn't specify a defense of public interest, uh, sometimes the courts have recognized that there are situation, situations where the subject of a story or a report um, is important enough to override the protection of copyright. Um, now, case law suggests that a court will be less likely to uphold the fair dealing defense if the work that was copied here in the Marco case, the letter, if the work has been leaked to a media organization. Your listeners might, re might recall the Hyde Park residence case um, which involved a story about Princess Diana and Dodi Al-Fahid. Um, the son had used um, steels that were taken from security cameras at Villa Windsor, a house in Paris. And although the events surrounding Princess Diana's death were a matter of public importance, but was there anything about those steels themselves that justified removing copyright protection? The Court of Appeal, the, uh, the Court of Appeal had said no. And also, um, the Court of Appeal had specifically mentioned the fact that the security film had been stolen and therefore fair dealing didn't apply. The public interest defense that you described there in copyright seems to operate a little differently from the one in the mm. use of private information in terms of the breadth of the public interest at stake. Um, from the case law you've described, it's, it seems to me that there's a broader public interest defence to an MPI claim. Do you think there's any chance of associated newspapers relying successfully on a public interest defence to the claim and misuse of private information? Well, um, again, I wouldn't think so. I think 
that you know, even on the basis of the claim of misuse of private information, there is a strong likelihood of success. If we look back into the past again, uh, there was a similar case that was brought by Prince Charles against the same defendant, associated in newspapers. Yeah. Um, so uh, in, that, in that case, uh, the court um, endorsed um, what the court said in the Douglas's case, and they placed a lot of emphasis on the original intention of the person who drafted the correspondence. I mean, just to mention briefly, I mean, the, the case was, uh, the Prince Charles case was not too dissimilar from this one in the sense that um, it concerned extracts from his uh, diary. And although one might say that the diary are different, because the letter, it's it goes out, it, the intention is to um, share it with a recipient, whereas the diary probably, you know, means, remains something which is, um, um, there is no intention there to share it with others. Um, so in that case, the court acknowledged that there will generally be an expectation of privacy where information is available to one person and not generally available to others, provided, of course, that the person who possesses that information doesn't have the intention that it should become available to others. So if Miss Marcus' intention was to share that letter only with her estranged father, then I would think that there was a, a good argument there to say that there was a legitimate, a reasonable expectation of privacy that this information would have been shared any further. Um, and I don't see, to be honest, you know, any strong public interest in the information being published. Um, again, looking back into uh, Fonanova, perhaps, um, we probably need, you know, a, a publication that makes a contribution uh, to a debate of a general interest. Um, is this publication making such a contribution? I think there's a question there. Uh, from my perspective, I don't see it. Reading the publication in the mail, I didn't find anything in any anything in that which would uh, would make me think that you know what's published um, uh, helps people to engage you know perhaps more with democratic institutions or raises a matter that you know exposes significant wrongdoing or raises or exposes hypocrisy, for example. I I just didn't see all that. Thank you. So the uh, Google and Facebook cases this week, I'm excited about because they seem to say two different things for um, international. Um, they seem to say, they seem to have two different outcomes for the way that European law is going to apply beyond um, the boundaries of the European territory. The Sinel case is the um, much talked about right to be forgotten case, which we remember with um, Google being imposed a 100,000 euro fine by the French data protection regulator um, and then taking it to courts to question uh, this jurisdictional overreach, um, claiming that um, France had no right to insist on a global delisting standard. The Facebook decision that was handed down the day later said that Austrian defamation laws would be applicable to every country where the Facebook post um, against the claimant, who was a um, politician of the Green Party, um, would have to be removed. And it was up to each member state to decide whether they were going to remove it or not. Um, 
So the two are interesting because they seem, one seems to say, one seems to be the ECJ saying, no, we have no right extending our um, reach beyond the European territorial boundaries. The other one says, actually, yes, we need to have some sort of international cooperation here if defamation laws are going to work in the internet age. Yes, there is, I think, prima facie attention between these two rulings. Um, because on the one hand, you have uh, a rather conservative, small c, um, ruling from the court keeping its jurisdiction fairly tightly within the confines of the European Union and um, European Union registered web domains um, in the Google case. But on the other hand, in the Facebook case, we're seeing the court um, not rule out the availability of worldwide injunctions. Um, now, worldwide injunctions are not terribly common under domestic UK law, but they are available. Um, and yes, they do clash inevitably with the laws of other jurisdictions. So enforcement of them becomes problematic. But in principle, there's nothing to stop a particular jurisdiction saying, we believe that the publication of X content is so damaging that we are going to forbid it um, across the globe, even if it becomes difficult to enforce that. And notoriously, it's extremely difficult to enforce libel injunctions issued in England in the United States, for example, because of the First Amendment. Um, so I think there is a bit of a tension there between the two decisions. There's this ongoing question of how appropriate it is for European, the European Union to be trying to apply its laws across the world including in places where it is unlikely to be able to enforce them. So big week for Google last week because there was a second um, case brought by brought in the Court of Appeal in the UK, uh, Google versus Lloyd. This was the so-called Safari workaround case um, by which Google allegedly used its double-click cookie technology on an iPhone Safari browser to secretly obtain browser-generated information about users of iPhone's in 2011 and 2012. Um, essentially, they were using this to track their internet activity without their knowledge. And it was alleged that Google contravened the Data Protection Act of 1998. And in doing so, compensation flows from that uh, contravention. So here you see um, Warby J's first instant judgment being totally overruled by the Court of Appeal. Um, and it's interesting because they seem to say um, in order to be compensated under data protection law, you do not need to prove a pecuniary loss or distress in terms of damages. What's interesting is you have the Court of Appeal giving a different understanding of um, from Warby J at first instance on the meaning of damage in relation to Article 82 of the GDPR a regulation and the Data Protection Act of 1998. But the question they were asked was in order to be compensated under data protection law, do you need to prove a pecuniary loss or distress? Warby J said yes. The Court of Appeal said, no, you don't. And by using the Galati analysis, which concerned damages for misuse of private information 
obtained via phone hacking, the Court of Appeal held that this analysis applies equally to data protection, where data protection convention causes the individual to lose control of autonomy over their personal data, the individual is entitled to be compensated regardless of any pecuniary loss or distress. So the first instance judgment requires some degree of actual damage or measurable damage, some tangible loss, um, whereas the Court of Appeal says, no, all you need is a breach of the act and that is in effect actionable per se. What is really striking here is that there's a, a degree of parallel between what's happened in this case and what happened in the Lachaud litigation, and, uh, which was a defamation litigation um, started a couple of years ago, where uh, the question for the court was how does section 1, subsection 1 of the Defamation Act of 2013 alter the element of meaning in a defamation case? To Justice Warby in that case, um, held that uh, in order for a statement to be defamatory, it had to cause some degree of tangible loss, except in cases where the statement was uh, of such severity that an inevitable degree of harm could be inferred. The Court of Appeal preferred a reading of uh, the Defamation Act that was more in line with the old common law on this and essentially um, suggested that harm can routinely be inferred in defamation cases. Now, ultimately that ended up in the Supreme Court where uh, the decision of Mr Justice Warby was reinstated along with all of the essential points in his reasoning. And that seems to me to be appropriate. Um, I've, I've written on the Court of Appeals decision in that case um, and thought it was deeply problematic, um, whereas I, I thought Mr Justice, Warby, Mr Justice Warby's reading of the relevant statute was contextually the more appropriate. Now, I haven't read the Google and Lloyd case, um, and it's always dangerous commenting on a case one has not had time to read um, but uh, when I do get around to reading it, I'll be interested to see just how much of a parallel there is there, given that we, we've we had a very similar situation, the way the Court of Appeal has reacted to a, a first instance judgment from uh, Mr Justice Warby. And um, it remains to be seen, I suppose, whether this ends up in the Supreme Court as well, and if so, what will happen? Um. There was a second issue in this case about whether the members of the class had the same interest and um, were those members identifiable. Obviously, Lloyd brought the case on behalf of potentially thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of users of iPhones who um, potentially had a breach. Um, and again, it's, it's Warby's understanding of damage that sees the Court of Appeal overturn his ruling. Um, he found, Warby, um, Warby found that the individuals were likely to have been affected by Google's alleged contraventions in different ways. Um, and the Court of Appeal held that he had gone wrong in law in this sense, in part because of the error on what was meant by damage, because um, you can't really tell if people have suffered the same damage if you aren't sure what the damage means, and that he had applied the same interest test in an unduly stringent way. And that's your lot. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thank you very much for listening. And as ever, follow us on at Media Law Podcast on Twitter 
for all up-to-date daily activities in the world of media law.